This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Hey, I'm glad you're with me. Now, just give me a minute and I'll get one of those subjects that makes people like the two guys in Victoria who my wife overheard saying, I can't stand Michael Campbell. I'll get to that. But don't worry. If you're nodding your head, the rest of the show is actually dynamite. we got Kyle Green coming on. He's going to talk about mortgage strategies in this world where rates are rising, with most analysts saying there's more increases to come. I also have Keystone's Aaron Dunn. He's going to drop by with a couple of stock recommendations for people who are looking for both yield and growth. And you know what? I'll be listening closely, given the last time we talked to Aaron, his big recommendation has gone up 51%. Plus, I've got a shocking stat would make even the most ardent climate change advocate take notice. Plus, what may be the ugliest truth in Canadian business today is my Goofy Award. And by the way, you're going to have to excuse my voice. I have a bit of a cold. No, it's not COVID. I've already been there and done that despite having both vaccinations. So first, a couple of weeks ago on 60 Minutes, a Facebook whistleblower caused a media storm by saying that the social media giant plays up negative stories in order to get more traffic. Well, you know, I'm nodding my head. Sure, they're right. But what should have been pointed out is who doesn't do that? I mean, in the news media, it's the old saw. If it bleeds, it leads. I mean, everyone does it. You know what? But I don't think there's a group who's been more effective, though, than environmental groups who have issued a litany of doomsday predictions. You might remember, you know, mass starvation or to overpopulation, end of civilization, to global cooling. Yes, global cooling. With the constant refrain that the world is going to come to an end if we don't take action immediately. And the motivation, well, it's just like Facebook's. Disaster, negative stories get attention. Maybe even helps raise some money in many cases. So let's not just point the finger at Facebook as my idea here. I mean, it's a common practice for years to play up the negative. Hey, we've got a great example from this from this former spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, Zeon Lights. Well, she talked about the strategy stating in quotes, a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion claimed that billions of people would die due to climate change by the end of the century. I refuse to defend that claim. It became a huge internal issue in Extinction Rebellion. Lots of people on my side saying we should retract the claim. There were lots of people on the other side saying if it woke people up, it didn't matter. Well, I don't think that's helpful. All that happens is the prediction doesn't play out and people think the whole thing's a hoax. End of quote. Well, I'm not sure which strategy is most effective. I mean, hype up the negative, scare people to death because it's going to get their attention or risk turning people off in the forecasts or the hyperbole don't play out. I mean, this is an important context, though, for COP26 in Glasgow. I mean, there's a huge number of people who seem to be tuning out our leaders after years, decades of alarmism, rhetoric that is long on virtue signaling, very short on practicality. As Lynn Alden, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, states, Individuals and institutions are more interested in looking green, feeling green, than being green. Despite all the COP meetings, we're now at 26, all the lofty targets, there's not a single realistic plan, for example, to obtain or produce the necessary rare earth minerals or other resources to produce or to go electric, to go renewable. You know, I get asked actually a fair amount about what my solution is. Well, first of all, I'm not in the alarmist camp. I think the hyperbole actually turns people off. That does the blatant attempt to use climate change as a rationale for more government control. I also think solutions are going to be found through technological advancement. And secondly, given that Canada contributes only 1.6% of global emissions, BC an estimated 15 one hundredths of 1%, Alberta 58 one hundredths of 1%, 
I'm a big fan of cost-benefit analysis. Not all solutions are equally effective and warrant the expenditure. So for me, the question is, what can we do that will get the biggest bang for the buck with the least cost to individuals and businesses? So since 2008, I've supported a revenue-neutral carbon tax. In other words, all the money, 100% collected from carbon tax, must be returned to the individual and businesses that pay it. And by the way, 3,300 economists, including 27 Nobel Prize winners, who signed what's called the largest collective statement from economists in history, well, they all endorse a revenue-neutral carbon tax as opposed to increasing regulations to achieve emissions goals, well, they all agree with me. I do not not support a carbon tax that doesn't return every cent to the people and businesses who paid it. You know what's noteworthy? is governments don't like the idea of returning all the money collected. You know, after BC introduced the only fully refundable revenue-neutral carbon tax in 2008, it took just two years later for a new Liberal government to start clawing back some of that revenue. And now the NDP government keeps over 80%, simply a tax grab. The point to get, though, as COP26 convenes, is that despite the overwhelming support of economists, not a single government's introduced a revenue-neutral carbon tax, which may help explain at least be part of the reason, the UN Environment Program study found that, in quotes, essentially there has been no real change, no real change in global emissions pathway in the last decade, end of quote, just as if no politics or policies, rather, had been put in place. Now, I'm not sure what we'd expect when virtue signaling takes precedent over practical solutions, but I like Winston Churchill's observation. He says, however beautiful the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. Now, I appreciate that many people, maybe most, disagree. You may well, but I'm old-fashioned. Talk is cheap. Virtue signaling doesn't get it done. In fact, hey, look at today's energy prices. It costs you big money. And as the UN said, hey, it doesn't accomplish much. One set of stocks that so many people own, maybe they don't appreciate it, is that through the Canada Pension Plan, or if you're lucky enough to be part of a workplace pension, maybe many of you in an RSP, well, you own Canadian bank stocks, and that's been a good thing. But Mike Levy's got some more news and a story that he's been really keeping us abreast of for at least 18 months, and that is rumors and big talk about the banks raising their dividends. So, Mike, what do you have for us? Well, the, the banks are looking to raise dividends. All they're looking for is permission from the superintendent of financial institutions. They're sitting on just a pile of cash, Mike, that cash coming out of the reserves that they had set aside for the possibility of the bad loans during the pandemic. And now they're sitting on these cash reserves. Those loans are performing. And the obvious place for the money to go is share buybacks, but also to up the dividends that they are paying because the, 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 the fact that they're sitting on all this money, this money has to be distributed and dividends are the logical place. What kind of size are we talking about? I remember going back uh, in the spring of 2020, you said it was something you were putting on your radar, something like a 15% jump in dividends was possible as we started to sort of discover that maybe we weren't going to get the same level of loan loss provisions needed. 
Uh, Mike, they're looking now, and I'm saying they, it's just not one lone analyst, but analysts and, and actually people with the banks are saying that they're looking for a between 20 and 25% dividend hike this November when OFSI, the Office of the Financial Institution, the people in charge, um, allow them to raise their dividends and do the share buyback. So somewhere between 20 and 25%. Mike, the banks are sitting on $21.5 billion in reserves that were put aside for that loan loss provision that is now sitting on their books. Well, let, let me ask you about the stocks. Do you think the stocks, I mean, they've performed perform very well, the bank stocks. Uh, it looks like maybe some of this news is already factored into their pricing. Oh, I think absolutely, Mike. The fact that we've been talking about this and now it's in the mainstream media and people are buying the bank stocks in anticipation of uh, the fact that there's going to be a dividend hike. And that is certainly jacked up the price of the bank stocks. One example, if I might, during the depths of the pandemic, the CIBC was uh, trading at around $81, $82 a share. Today, it's $147 a share. Well, a lot of that is performance because the banks are performing well, but a lot of that is also the anticipation of a hike in dividends. Well, as uh, added to the fact that I don't think there's been a major Canadian bank who's ever even reduced dividends, let alone not paid them. doesn't matter if you're talking sort of the depths of the 2008-2009 financial crisis or even during the pandemic. One of the things they immediately said, you know, sort of in that first and second quarter of 220, that they're not they're not changing their dividends. You know, they're protected. So, you know, I mean, they're committed to them. So that, that becomes pretty attractive if you want that uh, constant yield flow. Uh, Mike, the last Canadian bank to cut their dividend was National Bank, and that was in the last century. I can say that with a smile. Mm -hmm. They suffered. The bank shares suffered. The stock price suffered. Uh, it would have to be an awful, drastic, dramatic time to see a Canadian bank lower a dividend today. But as you say, we'll look for November for them raising those dividends. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Pleasure, Mike. Time now for the quotes of the week. I said quotes, by the way, because I've got two of them for you. You know, in the lead up to the federal election, poll after poll found that issues related to the cost of living topped our list of concerns. Now, that's exacerbated, by the way, by StatsCan inflation numbers this week that shows that the average price for a basket of goods had increased 4.4% in September compared to last year. In other words, what would cost you 100 bucks last year cost you $104.40 now? Much more, though, if we're talking about the cost of gasoline, where what cost you $100 last year worth of gas cost you $133 now on average. Overall, transportation costs are up 9%. Now, of course, that puts upward pressure on every good because they get transported. It's the same problem with grocery items, led by the explosion in meat costs over the last six months, especially. I mean, the price of ground beef is up 18%, bacon up 20%, whole chickens up 9%. Now, the point is that inflation is a big deal if you're concerned about your cost of living. And you also have to throw in some worries about interest rates, because when inflation expectations start rising, that puts upward pressure on interest rates. Which brings to me my two quotes of the week, both of them warnings about the current central bank's creating of money out of thin air to finance government borrowing and spending during the pandemic. Now, the first one's by former Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker in quotes. Credibility is an enormous asset. Once earned, it must, be, it must not be frittered away by yielding to the notion that a little inflation right now is a good thing. A good thing to release the animal spirits and to prep up investment. 
The implicit assumption behind the siren call must be that inflation rates can be manipulated to reach economic objectives. Well, they're up today, maybe a little more tomorrow, and then pull back on command. Well, good luck in that. All experience demonstrates that inflation, when fairly and deliberately started, is hard to control and reverse. That's the message. Second by former Federal Reserve Vice Chair Stan Fisher, he said this in 2019. History is littered with examples of how central banks' money printing leads to runaway inflation or hyperinflation. Yet there's little experience in using helicopter money to generate just enough inflation to achieve price stability. No, that highlights the main drawback of helicopter money, how to get inflation genie back in the bottle once it's been released, end of quote. I think we can put both of those former Federal Reserve top dogs in the camp as warning that the central banks are going to have a tough time reining in inflation once it takes hold. Well, in a world awash in debt, obviously what's happening with interest rates is key, but it's right down to the individual level. We've had so many Canadians enter the housing market, people on mortgages, people on variable rate, fixed rate, whatever. But we're seeing a bump up in interest rates, at least in the bond market. I thought we'd better get Kyle Green in here from the greenmortgageteam.ca and talk about that. Kyle, first of all, uh, what are you hearing on the ground from your people? Are you getting asked about the, more, uh, the sort of the interest rates and is it going to translate into the mortgage rates? Yeah, of course. I mean, everybody wants to know, is this the time that we're going to have that march forward and, and we won't see rates uh, adjust and come back down? So, yeah, bond markets are going up. And of course, fixed rates are going up. It was interesting, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, a couple of interest, uh, a couple of lenders are actually dropping interest rates as there's um, uh, some some flatness in the bond market for long enough. That the banks said, hey, you know what? Let's uh, let's decrease the interest rates just a, just a tad. Uh, all of a sudden, one week later, bond markets completely reversed are going up in the opposite direction. And uh, banks of many banks actually had two waves of increases. So uh, fixed rates definitely on the rise. And it's important for people to understand that the bond market sets the tone. You know, they don't yeah. have because individual circumstances at a financial institution. They can be doing this, trying to get market share. But generally, the bond market sets the tone. So, I mean, I look at the five year market, the five year bond, for example. So when I see it have you know, a pretty good rise in the last, you know, as you say, you know, go back a month, all of a sudden the talk about tapering hits the news, inflation numbers encourage uh, mortgage rates to go up, all of that stuff. So the big question for individuals is how does it translate down to them? Can you give me an idea, for example, of what's the best sort of five-year fixed you're locking in, five-year fixed rate you're seeing out there? Yeah, if you're getting an insured mortgage, as of today, there's still rates around the 2.09 to 2.19% range, but uh, but those will probably be gone fairly soon. Um, most banks right now are about 2.5%, give or take, for a regular five-year fixed rate right now. So that's the range that you can expect. Can you walk in and let's go, uh, you know, keep in mind, for example, I should have said this up front, what a mortgage broker does is shop the market. You don't pay the mortgage broker. It's the best service in town because they're the ones who are shopping the market, figuring out what's going on. And then you ask a mortgage broker like, Kyle, what's what's the best deal out there? Uh, Obviously, individual circumstances make a difference. But the question I'm also getting is people who are on variable rate. So can you give us an idea of the best variable rates you're seeing? And we'll compare them with that five year fixed. Yeah, there's a bigger gap now. Um, an insured variable right now is about 1.2%. So the gap has widened quite uh, considerably. Most banks right now are offering around 1.4 to 1.5% for a variable, um, depending on the client. 
we're seeing, you know, sometimes 1.3, 1.2 for uh, for larger mortgages. So uh, that gives you an idea of the range, but also the gap now has widened quite uh, quite considerably. So now it's it's an interesting time because if you're taking a new mortgage today, do you want the uh, you know one to one and a half percent discount off of the uh, what you would be getting if you took a fixed rate to go variable? So yeah, tell me, walk me through the process. Somebody comes in and let's say, and I know there's more details, but let's start with somebody who's going to have a first, not their, literally their first, but it might be their first mortgage, but they don't have an existing mortgage. What process do you do to decide? Obviously it's individual circumstances, but to decide which one's best for them. For sure. Yeah. The variable definitely has more flexibility. So obviously, number one, the rate is lower. That's that's one of the reasons that people are going to, to consider a variable rate. But but there's a couple of other key points that are very important as well. The, and probably the most important one, um, to be frank, is the penalty calculation. So on a variable rate mortgage, the penalty is three months interest. That's it. If you're in a fixed rate mortgage, especially with a major bank, the penalty is either three months interest or what's called an interest rate differential penalty. And the major banks fiddle around with their posted rates to manipulate these these penalties to make them quite expensive. Uh, they're often five to 10 times more expensive than, um, than what a, a three-month penalty would be. On that note, by the way, non-bank lenders that are only accessible through mortgage brokers, their penalty calculation is not nearly as onerous as, uh, as major banks are. So that's the first thing we look at is the penalty. The other thing is the ability to convert it to a fixed rate at any point in time at no cost. So you can lock it into the, the, um, into a fixed rate. So those, those two points are, are really key. And of course, the third is just the fact that you're getting a much lower interest rate to start. Let me come back to the penalty. Just bring me up to speed on that. Why would I get a penalty if I'm not going to get one because I went from my variable to a fixed? Yeah. So that the, the issue is, and a crazy stat, but the, the average Canadian has a mortgage in effect for 39 months. So that's, that's the stat. Now, what ends up happening is most people say, well, I'm not going to sell my property. I'm not going to break my mortgage. Life happens though. Uh, divorce happens. Uh, having a child needing to sell your place and buy something else. Um, uh, wanting to refinance your mortgage. There's a lot of instances that, uh, that, that come up where people want to redo their mortgage. Now, sometimes what happens is, um, you're expecting to port your mortgage. And if you port it and you increase it or keep the mortgage amount the same, there are no penalties to do that. The only challenge is sometimes you go out and buy a, let's say you go from a townhouse to a house now and you want to buy something that has a, a, a suite in the basement in order to be able to afford that house. Well, one of the challenges is house prices are so high that you really need to lean on the suite income in order to qualify for that mortgage. And credit unions, as an example, right now are using much higher amounts of rental income from basement suites to qualify you. So if you went to a bank, got a five-year fixed rate mortgage, and now you want to stretch yourself into a house in order to get maybe an extra $100,000 in qualifying power, or even in some cases, $200,000, well, maybe you now are best to fit with the credit union. Well, guess what? Now you're paying a $20,000, $30,000 penalty on that mortgage where your penalty could have been three or four grand. Yeah, because you switched institutions. Correct. Yeah. So... Uh, what I like, though, is come back to the, the question, and of course, as a professional yourself, you're the one who, who provides that information, who talks to them about that information. But, you know, so there can be a penalty if you've had to change the terms of the mortgage, you know, major terms, meaning, meaning I got to get out of this, period. That would be yeah. a term. I, I want to switch institutions. Uh, not the same if I'm in uh, one of my one of the banks or one of the lenders, and I just want to go from variable to fix. So that's an important point for people to get. Um Again, though, ultimately, that decision then comes down to what am I saving if I stay variable? 
My risk is that rates won't stay down this long, you know, or, or at some point I'll be forced to pay higher rates. So is that the, the big question that you'd ask individuals? Let's check out your circumstances and see how that fits. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's interesting because the, the bank, the, you know, all of the banks have to qualify you on a stress test anyways. And they're, so they're using a stress test of five and a quarter rate to qualify our clients. So regardless of whether you knew it or not, the lenders had to assume that your interest rate would be five and a quarter at some point during your mortgage in order for you to qualify for that mortgage. Um, so there is already a built-in stress test, but it doesn't mean that that fits your budget. And so we always say, if you're worried about being able to afford your mortgage, then we can always look at, well, how much, how much higher would rates have to go before you're in a position where you cannot afford that mortgage? If, if interest rates going up 1% are going to put you in a position where you can't afford your mortgage, then lock it in. Why are we why are we playing this game of trying to max out, you know, save every little penny, lock in at the perfect time? You know, you shouldn't be gambling with uh, with your house, let's put it that way. So uh, I think it's important to understand how much higher should would rates have to go in order for you to be in a position where you can't afford your uh, your your payments anymore. That's an excellent point. Let me just finish with this, throw a little curveball at you. You know, when you're dealing with so many clients over this number of years at the Green Mortgage Team, what do you think the biggest misconception is uh, when people come to you that they don't seem to understand about mortgages in general? Biggest misconception. Interesting. Um, I mean, one one interesting one is, of course, we are absolutely free. And so you said this earlier, Mike, you know, there's not a lot of industries where you go to somebody and they work their butt off to help you and, and help you save money. And they're actually free to you. <laughs> There's not a lot of industries where that's, uh, that's the case. And so sometimes that's a, a little bit of a misconception. Um, but, uh, but other than that, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes we actually will go and take our client right back to their own bank and get them a better rate through their bank because we send that bank 50 million, a hundred million dollars a year in, in mortgage volume. Uh, the reality is we are just a much bigger client than than that individual client is of that bank. So sometimes we can leverage that and, and flex a little bit. But it's definitely a reminder for people. That's why, I mean, obviously the most important financial decision for most people, they're not going to go in and borrow $300,000 to invest in stocks normally. I mean, some people obviously do in their business, but for most of us, that's the most important decision. And I'm big on getting all the information. And I want to thank you for providing such valuable information today, Kyle. Yep, no problem. Happy to be here. Kyle Green, thegreenmortgageteam.ca. Time now for this week's shocking stat. You know what? It's a number so big that it's incomprehensible. 3.5 trillion. Normally, I'd say let that sink in, but it can't. It's too big. But that's the amount of money it's estimated to require to transition the energy sector to renewables. 3.5 trillion per year, plus as much as 135 billion per year, to carbon capture and biofuel technology with more money needed for the research and development of new technologies. According, this is according to the building a private finance system for net zero. It's a report that's being prepared. It has been prepared, but it's for the upcoming COP26 conference. I mentioned earlier that there's no practical, realistic plan to achieve the transition. Well, that includes, hey, where's some money going to come from? But one thing I will say, you are not going to attract the capital needed by increasing corporate taxes along with taxes on capital gain. I find this is absolutely absurd, these proposals that come from progressive and environmental parties. It's just the way of the world. I mean, look, we need money. Oh, I know. Let's make it far less attractive to invest in new energy transition by raising taxes. Not. You know what? At some point with those kind of ideas, we pass through the unworkable, 
right into the land of the absurd. As you can tell on this show, we have a concern about rising interest rates. At least we've seen it in the bond market. I'll talk to Victor Adair more about that later in the show. But right now, I thought it would be a great idea to get Keystone Financial's Aaron Dunn on the line with me. Aaron, first of all, appreciate you taking time. And I'm going to start with a good one for you because I was looking at uh, what you recommended at the World Outlook Conference. Uh, Boardwalk Apartment REIT up 51%. That's my idea of a good yield plus growth stock. Uh, we're really, really happy with that one. And that was, uh, that was an opportunity that really jumped out to us at the time. If anybody who's following the real estate market in Canada knows how competitive it is, knows how difficult it is to find anything of value, particularly in the apartment space, um, it's, it's just uh, the, the yields were really being driven lower um, by a lot of capital coming into the market. And then we have Boardwalk REIT here, which we found to be just a really underfollowed, underknown company. Um, but still had great fundamentals and looked it looked extremely undervalued at the time uh, relative to where prices were for apartments. So we we move forward with that. We like the management team. I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk about it at the World Outlook, and it's 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 produced a great return for our uh, for our clients and for your your attendees. And we um, we're, we're happy to update it as well today. Um, it's 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 still looking like a good solid under undervalued business with. Uh, with strong fundamentals going forward. Well, what kind of yield did it have yesterday when the market was closing? So the yield is is not as impressive. It's a lower yielding stock. It's about 1.9% right now. Um, so obviously the yield was higher when we recommended it at the, at the outlook. Uh, but this is a company that has been investing a lot of its residual cash flow into, into growing the business, into expanding its portfolio of apartment units. Uh, and they're getting at a point right now because the payout ratio is so low that as they continue to grow over the next one to two years, they're going to have to start increasing that income distribution uh, in line with growth of underlying cash flow. So we are expecting, I mean, we, we can never predict exactly what's going to happen, but we are expecting to see growth in the income distribution start uh, over the next one to two years. And this is something that's really quite rare in the Canadian REIT real estate investment trust space is it's, it's difficult to find companies in this space that are able to grow their cash flow per unit um, and their income distributions on a consistent basis. And, and Boardwalk has certainly been doing great the last, uh, the last couple of years on cash flow per unit. And we're expecting that that's going to translate into income distribution growth as well. Well, I'll come back and ask you for a couple other stocks in a moment, but you're just bringing up that point is overall market valuations have changed. And how, how does that impact uh, investment strategy or your selection? Right. So if you look at overall market valuations, if you look at the average market valuation, there's, there's, there's no doubt that, that we're, we're in a, an extremely expensive environment right now. If you were to look at market valuations on average based on price to earnings, we're actually quite near historic highs with, expect, with respect to stocks being expensive. Uh, the only time they were more expensive was right around the very top of the dot-com bubble. Um, but that's a market average, and that doesn't necessarily give you information about the individual companies. So um, a lot of areas we find valuations are extremely frothy, um, but there are value in other select areas as well. And one thing that we are noticing is that um, investors are used to, the, these days, they're, they're used to these exciting tech growth stories where you're producing, you know, revenue growth well into the 20, 30% um, earnings growth, in many cases doubling. 
Um, but there are a lot of really good, solid businesses out there. They're not growing quite as fast, but they're growing consistently and they do trade at reasonable valuations. So there are some opportunities in that space. And there are also some opportunities in some higher growth areas as well. So one thing that we did at our DIY seminars uh, last year is we looked at the FANG stocks. Um, so these, this refers to the big tech names in the U.S., Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, uh, Microsoft, and Google. We looked at all those companies. We determined, that, we determined that there's a couple of companies there that did have really good, strong value uh, at the time. Those were Microsoft and Google. Um, certainly not cheap, but relative to the rates that they were growing at, uh, the way that they were innovating, we considered it growth at a reasonable price. Those companies did well. Um, and that's something that we're going to be doing in the future is looking at these FANG stocks again, as well as some other um, really interesting U U.S. tech names and cybersecurity. And, you know, you, you do have to pay up a little more uh, in those areas, but there are certainly there are certainly good growth opportunities that we would still qualify as growth at a reasonable price. What about inflation here? I mean, we just got, of course, the September numbers this past week at 4.4 percent, uh, you know, over 4 percent and uh August, I'm seeing sort of a change in theme, broadly speaking, that inflation is going to be with us a little bit longer. What about that aspect or that variable when you're looking at the stock market? Certainly, certainly. So when I, when I look at inflation, so first of all, we're never trying to predict big macroeconomic movements um, one to, to two years out. I'm not going to try and predict where interest rates or inflation is going to be exactly one to two years out. But I will say that all the signs right now are, are pointing to continued inflation. And, and I, I don't really, I, I don't think that that's debatable. I mean, we have supply chain issues. We have massive expansion in the money supply. We have um, issues with the labor market. Now, whether this is hyperinflation or whether, whether this is just inflation uh, moderately above the target is, is yet to be seen. But certainly investors have to consider inflation. So one thing um, that's, I think, important to understand in this type of an environment is that cash is not a risk-free investment. In fact, it's far from. Now, in the past, cash was considered a safe haven. Uh, government bonds were considered a safe haven. But when you have bonds yielding, you know, one and a half, one point seven percent per year, you don't even need to have much inflation to essentially completely destroy that return. So we're 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 focused on. We we continue to believe that the best way to deal with an inflationary environment is to invest in a portfolio of high quality companies that are providing some type of an essential service or some type of a solution to problems that society faces, that the world faces. And these are the type of companies that are gonna have some type of pricing power to contend with inflation and essentially continue to grow um, their earnings and their cash flow over time. And then of course, dividend growth stocks, that's always been a huge part of our strategy as well. They don't have to be every company that you own, but we believe that nearly every investor can benefit from having some exposure to dividend growth stocks. Particularly if you need income in your portfolio, you're not getting that from the bond market. So there are companies out there that are still paying reasonable yields. They're growing their dividends at five to 10% per year or more. And that helps you, that helps you deal with the, with the inflationary pressures. And then there are some companies, one that I mentioned at the World Outlook as well, um, earlier in the year that actually have inflation adjustments uh, factored into their long-term contracts. So as inflation continues to increase, um, they're able to pass this on to their customers contractually. So our, our focus is always on building that portfolio where you have a diverse set of highly profitable companies that are in markets um, that are either, once, once again, essential 
or well positioned to continue to grow and innovate, um, build this portfolio up. And that, that is the best way to, to essentially deal with an inflationary environment. We don't like to make big bets on macroeconomic projections. So if somebody is thinking that inflation is going to be a major factor over the couple of years, over the next couple of years, don't necessarily, you know, bet the mortgage that it's going to turn out exactly the way you expect, because you could be partially right. You could be partially wrong. Um, but where you're wrong could essentially change the whole picture for you. So it's, it's about maintaining that prudent strategy. This is what has worked for Keystone for over 20 years and for our clients. Um, and it's really a focus on companies that are doing great things. Um, and if they're doing great things for their markets and their customers, they're going to do great things for their, for their investors. That reminds me, I know you've got a couple of seminars coming up and I'll give details on that in a minute on November uh, 2nd and November 9th, uh, talking about exactly what you're saying there, how to build this portfolio. Uh, yeah, you know, also, you'll have some fresh research and new ideas and stuff. But I think the foundation of how you approach the markets is obviously the key. Let me just, okay, I'm going to throw a couple at you then. Hot sector has been like the energy sector. Do you see anything there, uh, you know, sort of a yield pick in that side? Yeah, certainly. We have uh, we, we have a couple uh, uh picks in the, in the energy space, um, not specifically producers necessarily or service companies, but companies that we think provide exposure to that area, but are a little more, a uh, little more stable, a uh, little less complex operationally. Would you like a recommendation right now? Yeah, please. Excellent. So one of our, one of our, one of the more interesting companies in the energy space right now uh, is Enbridge. Um, it's in, in terms of a company that's going to deliver a high yield you have some some sustainability of dividend. It's growing its dividend over time. And most people know who Enbridge is, but it's, it, it is the largest pipeline company in the world. It is an essential business. It has irreplaceable energy infrastructure uh, assets throughout North America. And what's really interesting about the company is that they've just recently finished construction of the largest growth project in their history. That's the Line 3 expansion. They're expecting that that's going to be commissioned and operational in Q4. I can't remember the last time a major pipeline project has successfully been built. So it, it is looking like this, this project is going to be commissioned. And then we're going to see the benefits of that towards the end of the year uh, and in 2022. But this is a high yield stock. It's about a 6.3% yield, um, reasonable payout ratio, healthy balance sheet. As I said, this company grows its dividend on an annual basis. So 26 years of uh, consecutive dividend growth every year, uh, growing their dividend. And it's, it's not going to give you the, the, the volatility of a producer. So when the, when commodity prices go up, you know, you're not going to get that, that 200% return. Uh, but you're not going to get that 50% drop when commodity prices go down. Um, so it does have exposure to the energy space, but it's a contracted business. And, and that's something that we, we like, um, uh, for, for people that are looking for, for an income yield. So um, relative to the, to the underlying cash flow, it's about 10 times free cash flow. We think that's very reasonable. I wouldn't buy into Enbridge expecting, you know, a high double digit returns consistently over the next five years, but you're going to get that 6.3% yield, um, pretty consistent growth in the dividend over time. Um, so I think that overall, over the next two to three years, it's a very reasonable, uh, it's a very reasonable return um, based on the risk. Okay, we've got time for one more, and I, I warned your office. I wanted to ask you about this, which is your top U.S. infrastructure so, uh, stock. There's obviously so much talk about that with the wrangling going on in Congress and the Senate. So you got a top pick there? 
Yeah, U.S. infrastructure. So this is an interesting space because it's not even debatable um, that U.S. infrastructure, aging infrastructure, requires a multi-trillion dollar investment. And our top uh, pick in, the, in, in this space is NV5 Global. Uh, so they're, they're a leading engineering and consulting firm. They're extremely well positioned to, to benefit from continued investment into U.S. infrastructure. So in terms of the fundamentals and financials of the business, it uh, has a very consistent track record of growth. It was very resilient in 2020. Um, the company is producing record earnings this year. We expect earnings to be up about 17%. It's growing by acquisition. And this is a company that they don't take project risks. So they're not a construction company. They're engineering uh, and consulting. So this is a fee-for-service business, which we like because they're not, they're, they're, they're not going to experience the same level of volatility uh, as a construction company. They don't have to worry about cost overruns. But they're, this, this is a story where you know, there's a lot of talk about a big infrastructure package being passed at the federal level in the U.S. And quite frankly, I, I don't know at this point if that is going to happen. If it does, uh, NV5 Global is extremely well positioned to benefit from that. But even if it doesn't, it doesn't really affect the growth strategy that they already have in place. Uh, and we're expecting, you know, low double digit revenue growth going forward over the next several years here. Margin improvement. So good profitability. Right now, the stock is trading at about 23 times trailing earnings. And we think that that's a very reasonable valuation given the theme that it's, the theme that it's positioned in um, and the fundamentals and financials behind the business. So if you want, to, uh, you want to, to buy something that positions you in that U.S. infrastructure theme, then I think that NV5 Global is, is one, of the, one of the better picks in the space. Certainly, it's our top, top pick in the space. Uh, so the symbol on that is N-V-E-E, -E, and it trades on the NASDAQ. Well, that's a great lead-in because I want to remind people that on November 2nd, 7 p.m. Pacific time, 8, 8 p.m., of course, Mountain, uh, November 9th, 4 p.m. Pacific, 5 Mountain, and across, you can do the math for the rest of it. But uh, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. As I say, the foundation of your uh, investment success comes with how to position, how to create a stock portfolio and more than that. But Aaron's going to be talking exactly about this stuff, uh, you know, and, you know, with specific recommendations, what's going on in the market, how you should interpret that for what you're doing, uh, you know, along with their uh, great investment ideas, which has proven extremely well, which is why we've worked with them in the World Outlook Conference for a lot of years. I didn't have gray hair when that started. So there you go. But Aaron, thanks so much for finding time. And again, the seminar is November 2nd and November 9th. Go for details at mikesmoneytalks.ca. We'll put it right there, mikesmoneytalks.ca. This is really worthwhile stuff. A great, uh, well, great way to spend some time, but really reposition really get the foundation for how you approach the markets and specifics. Aaron, thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Let's talk a little more real estate right now. Ozzy Jurek's with me at ozbuzz.ca. Hey, Ozzy, last weekend and other weeks, we've been talking about that maybe there was a little buyer fatigue at the top end of the single detached home market because of just simply the prices. And you were saying you're going to watch a shift coming down. This is going back a couple of months. You said watch for the shift to come back down into the condos. Well, that looks like it's happened uh, in spades. I mean, I look at some of the numbers, uh, you know, whether it's Toronto or Calgary, Vancouver, and man, the condo sales are way up. Yeah, and it's it's astounding the, the the level of the real estate boards report that the Greater Vancouver condo sales up 87 percent. The big surprise to me, Calgary is up 83 percent, and Toronto 71, and so on. It's right across the board. People have said, you know what? 
just can't make it into this single family home. Let's see what is there in condos. And they've been out there buying condos. I sound like one of those old men, though, when I look at some of those average prices in, in a place like Toronto or Vancouver, and I just start shaking my head. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the days when a mansion was $100,000. <laughs> you know, now you can't get a, a a bachelor suite in the ballpark of that if you're talking about a traditional condo. You and me both, but that is this unreported inflation I've been talking about for the last 20 years. We're seeing it in a dramatic fashion in the real estate sector right across the world. But you know, there are some local governments that uh, that are trying to take some initiatives. Well, well, tell me about these things like the micro suites. Uh, I remember the first ones were, gosh, they were ages ago, and people said, "How can you possibly live in 300 or 350 square feet?" But I see that's coming back on, and there's, uh, you know, some popularity because mainly the price is affordable. Well, you know, in fact, uh, Sharon City, the the owner of Tin Share. A development company in Surrey he took in 2017 he built a 56 suite building well about 300 uh, square feet size and the prices were around one, 109,000 to 159 and everybody told him it'll never work nobody will ever want to live there it's too small now they were very cleverly designed you know a lot of, a lot of it was built in you know a lot of the things that you normally might have to buy for and he won actually the ovation award of excellence in creating innovative housing with it and nobody... you... Sorry, I was going to say, are you, are you looking for that? To, I mean, I'm just sort of reading hints of that, that we might see a lot more of that style. Yeah, and you're, you're quite right. In fact, in West Vancouver, of all places, it is city council voted six to one last week to advance a proposal to build 199 micro unit market rental apartments at the corner of Taylor Way and Clyde Avenue, which would be about 90 percent of them would be about 350 square feet. So and that's West Van. But you can see it's the local governments that are trying to take some initiative. Can't wait for the federal government's big dollars to ever make it to the ground. Well, let me come back, you know, speaking of that and some local initiatives, go, let's go to Vancouver Island for a second. Uh, you know, Langford, which is just outside of Victoria, just, you know, 20 minutes sort of out of Victoria up island. Uh, they look like they're I just read something about they have some sort of city affordable housing reserve fund. Yeah, and that's very interesting. I was talking to Rick Hogendorn, who's a developer and a top realtor in Victoria, and he said it's it's really kind of an interesting thing because the fund is made from contributions by developers as a condition of rezoning. And so they want to use that money to help prospective buyers some financial assistance towards the 5% down payment. That to me seems like a very brilliant idea, sort of. You know, the, the developer will actually say, oh, my money that I'm paying to get this rezoned is actually going to a worthwhile cause. And it actually goes to people that need it. It's interesting, though, to go back to just on that one, 5% down. It's uh, it's fascinating, you know, because, of course, uh, you know, the more money you put down, the more st stability you've got for the marketplace. But it's in this case, it's just can you even get in the market? So 5% down gets you in the market and go from there. Yeah, and they're looking at a purchase, a set purchase price of 450000 So there's a limitation as to what you can buy as a buyer, but that should really help. Well, it's it's also, you know, I, I like hearing about that from you, Ozzy, because we've had so much talk about affordability. I mean, it's sort of like uh, you must, if you're a politician, make some sort of lip service toward it. Those, Both of those uh, are all of these things that we've just been talking about, whether it's a micro suite or in this case, you're talking about in Langford City's Affordable Housing Reserve Fund. That looks like at least it's a step. That looks more than talk. There's something happening. 
Yeah, and, and it's now. You know, I, I, I'm sure all the goals that the federal government has are worthwhile. But by the time it goes into committees and then get all sorts of opinions and, and nobody can get the money, in the end, it's the local council that does the rezoning and makes the land available. And it doesn't matter whether it's Benjamin Tall, a serious economist, or whether it's anybody else in the government. They all say we need supply and we need it now. Absolutely. Well, we'll be here to chronicle it. In the meantime, people can go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. And Ozzy, you go out and have a terrific weekend. Thank you, Mike, and you too. Lots to talk about now, so let's go live to the trading desk. And let me bring in Victor Adair here. Vic, I was talking to Kyle Green earlier in the show about what's happening in the mortgage market, but of course, as I chatted with him, it looks at the bond market. Can you give me an idea of what's been going on, say, with a five-year uh, government bond and a two-year? Because that's what people look at, and that translates or has a huge influence, of course, in what mortgage rates are doing. Yeah, sure. We've got uh, short-term interest rates, especially two and five-year, have been really moving up sharply here the last, call it, three, four weeks or so. Uh, since the middle of September, I think we've seen the American five-year go from about 0.8% to about one and a quarter. Uh, in Canada, it's gone from about 0.8 to 135. What's happening here is the market is adjusting, uh, it, it's anticipating what the central banks are going to do as inflation appears to be more persistent. That's really what's going on here. And with this sharp move in, in the short rates, uh, long rates have been backing up, but not nearly as much. So we're getting a, a steepening, uh, I should say, <laughs> the yield curve is really moving around. There's a lot of action in, in the interest rate markets here. But the, the, the takeaway that I have is that the Bank of America does an annual, a monthly fund manager survey. They go to institutional accounts all across the country and the institutional money managers in the United States are the most bearish, the bond market, they've been in the 20-year history of this survey. And again, why? Because they're worried that interest rates are going up. And of course, bond prices drop at that point. One of the big themes of money talk since really, uh, we said one more kick at the can in February Outlook Conference of 2020. We said there'd be one more big push down in interest rates and then buyer beware. So that's consistent with that. But I want to go to the stock market now for a sec, Vic, because um, the stock market didn't seem to mind this up in rates. I mean, it looks like they're already anticipating it. Yeah. Well, some of the research I look at says that the stock market is looking at an entirely different world than, say, the bond market is. We're certainly seeing that in the volatility. The volatility in a bond market is way higher than the volatility in the stock market. When the stock market has, uh, well, we have a 6% sell-off or so in the broad indices in September. We've recovered all of that, just barely making new all-time highs. But we've had tremendous rotation in the market. I mean, on the show here over the past few months, I was pointing out how the Dow theory, which held that, you know, it's not a true bear bull market unless the transports are, you know, acknowledging and making new highs along with the Dow Jones industrial indices. The transports were like the, the weakest performing market from May through September. And here in October, the transports have been the hottest while the big tech stocks, which dominate the NASDAQ, have caused the NASDAQ stock indices to kind of rotate. So we keep making this point. The stock market's not a monolithic thing. There's within the stock market, there's cycles as well. And of course, uh, as we were just discussing off air, 
Canadian banks are, are up around, you know, 10% or so from the beginning of the month as uh, the, the, the broad Toronto market has been the strongest of the major indices in North America, largely on the back of energy. Yeah, I was just going to come, come to that. Obviously, one of the big reasons is what's happened with uh, crude oil, other commodities too. I'm thinking of copper. I mean, again, they've had this huge, robust rally. There has been a very strong psychological wave, the way I look at markets here, buying into the bull market or the commodity bull market story. WTI, since the middle of August, has jumped from $62 to $84. That's a 35% increase in that short period of time. We're at a seven-year high on WTI. But to me, the most astonishing thing is how much the front months have soared relative to the back months in crude and also in, in other commodities like copper. This is showing like in the real world that the demand for physical stuff like to be delivered right now is very strong. And that's that's, I think, a big part of what's given these markets the boost to the upside. But I said these markets, I mean, particularly the energy markets and copper and some of the other metals. Uh, just one more quick question, and that is, obviously, commodities in the past have had a good correlation with the Canadian dollar. We've seen the Canadian dollar bounce up over 81, I think, at one point this week. So, uh, again, that's all correlated, as you uh, always discuss. I always look at the correlations around markets. I'm going to tell you that the Canadian dollar is like a cork bobbing on the ocean. And the ocean is commodity markets, the stock market and the relative strength or weakness of the U.S. dollar. What goes on in Canada, honestly, as far as the world's foreign exchange traders are concerned, doesn't matter. If the stock market's going up and the commodity market is going up and the U.S. dollar is weak, I can tell you the Canadian dollar is going up despite what they're doing in Ottawa. And if vice versa, you know, the Canadian dollar is going to be going down. That's just how it is in the world of foreign exchange trading. Go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Great stuff as usual, Vic. Thanks, Mike. Always good to talk to you. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know what? And this is just the kind of bluntness that makes me unpopular with some people. But nonetheless, this week's Goofy has got to be on the short list for the ugliest truth in Canada that very few are willing to admit. And that is Canadian companies that do business in China are supporting and fortifying the world's biggest human rights abuser the world's most extensive surveillance state, and the Chinese military. They're supporting the Communist Party's aggression throughout the world, including in Canada. I mean, CSIS, the Canadian military, and the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians have all warned about China's threat to Canada's national security. They cite espionage, foreign influence, cyber threats. David Vignol, director of CSIS, states that China represents, in quotes, the most significant and clear challenge. When it comes to espionage targeting Canadian campuses, uh, engaged in the monitoring and or coercion of students, faculty and university officials, for example, in an effort to extend their political influence. You know, the RCMP receives 20 tips a day detailing clandestine activities by the Communist Party agents in Canada. The point is that Canadian companies that do business in Canada, along with all of us consumers who buy goods made in China, are actually helping to provide the financial wherewithal for the Communist Party of China. Now, I'm not going to talk the politics. No, I'm simply pointing out the reality that ultimately the Communist Party of China controls every company that operates there. 
I mean, Western investors in Chinese tech companies or educational services and foreign media just got a wicked reminder as to who ultimately runs the show in China with the communist crackdown. Any Western company that operates in China does so only with the blessing of the Communist Party and Xi Jinping, and that includes censorship. I mean, look at the NBA. They so vividly demonstrated that when it groveled after then Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey's seven-word tweet in support of pro-democracy in Hong Kong. Although you don't have to go to China to experience the censorship of the CCP. No, every member of the federal cabinet, I think every Canadian doing business in China, allows themselves to be censored by the Chinese communists. Come on, it's not like anybody in Canada approves of the communists chaining Uyghur women to beds and raping them or interning over a million, but you don't hear anything about it. Or anyone approves of the de facto invading of Hong Kong, breaking the signed international agreement while eliminating its citizens' rights. Or what about the lying about COVID? and disappearing any doctor in China who tried to blow the whistle and warn us. No, they don't agree with that, but they don't say anything because they don't want to offend Xi Jinping or the Communist Party. And make no mistake, there would be a price to pay. And we just saw this on Thursday. Boston Celtics forward Enos Cantor released a three-minute video calling for China to free Tibet and called Xi a brutal dictator. And presto, all Boston Celtic games are now canceled on TV in China. Maybe an uglier truth, though, is that slave labor in Xi Jinping province is involved in so many products that we all buy, including those NBA players, by the way, who endorse clothing made from cotton harvested by slaves. Consumers who buy goods manufactured in China from companies like Nike, Tommy Hilfinger, Uniqlo, Adidas, Esprit, should all know that those companies have been implicated in their supply chain of using forced labor. World Vision Canada estimates that slave labor or child labor is implicated in $34 billion in products imported into Canada every year. Well, how about solar panels? I wonder if COP26 in Glasgow is going to discuss the fact that the majority of the world's solar panels are made with slave labor in China. Now, look, I do appreciate that our relationship with the world's biggest human rights abuser, the biggest aggressor, is complicated. So you'll have to forgive me for simplifying the question. Is there any atrocity too great, human rights abuse too abhorrent, that would prompt our government, our businesses, and us as consumers to merit a rethink on China? Well, how about when they invade Taiwan? Because it's going to happen. I mean, do we have any principal boundaries that we're going to defend? We'll see. That's all the time we have this week. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen with us. And please... Go to Money Talks Tweets, join us on Michael Campbell's Money Talks Facebook, and go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.